Do you have any questions about the practice? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's too many questions in this question. I think like a couple of car babies that are having to do with doubt. One's about my own personal doubt of doing the practice properly. And the other is about the Dharma and doing the Dharma. And it seems to me that the personal doubt gets me in the whirl, whirlpool into the greater doubt of the Dharma. Um, you know, I'm not doing it properly. Or, um, you know, if I can't handle my neurotic pain and being blessed by being born in this country. Um, how could I handle what people are going through war and torture? And then I get on myself for that. And then I'm wondering not if the people who are going through really torture are really subject to really the same thing that I'm that we're talking about, which you talked about yesterday, about an illusion like watching a movie. I mean, their eyes are closed, you know, they're still starving or they're going through pain. He cut off the Dalai Lama's hand without anesthesia. Would he not experience suffering? <laughs> um, so that's that's the one thing. The other thing that somehow <laughs> <laughs> is the, um, the idea of Dhamma leaders, teachers like Trumpa. This gets this where I'm doubting the whole Dhamma. And uh, he's brilliant. I loved his things and what he's written. And, and yet, you know, he was an alcoholic and died of the complications of alcoholism before he was 50. And so it's really hard for me to, to know how much to believe. I don't want to be conned into another ism, <coughs> Buddhism, capitalism. Okay, pick and choose my <laughs> The question was about doubt. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the practice, I think it's helpful to (coughs) develop insight into the nature of doubt itself rather than focus on the specific content. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, there's an interesting description uh, of the hindrances between the difference, the difference between restlessness and doubt. And in restlessness, the mind is hovering around the object, but actually not landing on it. You know, so the example I gave is like if you drop the stone into a pile of uh, dust, you know, or the dust would uh, fly up, but all in the vicinity of the stone, right where it dropped. That's like restlessness. We have an intention to be with the object, whether it's the breath or sensation or walking. When the mind is restless, it's hovering around it, but not landing. With doubt, there's not even an intention to be with the object. The doubt is so seduced by the thinking process that it's completely unrelated to actually the experience in the moment. And that's why it is such a tremendous obstacle on the path. Because we're not even in the vicinity of actually what's happening. 
We're caught up in some kind of perplexity. And that's the nature of doubt, it's perplexity. Is it this? Is it that? When we're caught in that loop, we're not even close to actually the truth of the moment in which you can resolve all your doubts. When you're just with the breath, in that moment and you're feeling it, is there any doubt about the truth of that experience? or a sensation, or a sound, or a thought, if you're aware of it as thought. When you're just with what's happening, is there any doubt about the impermanence of phenomena? And we see it. It's not a question of thinking about it. And so we don't have to convince ourselves, are things impermanent, are they permanent? You know, did this person say this about it or that person say that? No, because we know for ourselves. Likewise, with the unsatisfactoriness, with the insubstantiality, it's all a question of verification for ourselves through direct experience, not through thinking about things. The Buddha gave a a very... uh, well-known simile, basically in response to questions like that, you know, which you're probably familiar with, the the example of the guy being shot by the arrow. And this person shot by an arrow, and people come to help him. It's a poisonous arrow, and he's going to die. He says, no, don't take it out yet. I want to know who shot the arrow, and what kind of wood it was made out of, and how it was fashioned, and, you know, this list of questions. The Buddha said, that person will certainly die before all those questions are answered. So this is the nature of doubt, this perplexity. It's not to say, in fact, it's precisely because they're interesting questions that the mind gets so seduced by them. During Integration Week, we can talk about it. This is not the time, because it really is a diversion from actually being with just what's arising. And so as those thoughts come, in whatever form doubt comes, you really want to see it as a thought form, rather than getting caught up in the content. And I used to, I think I've mentioned this earlier, but just in in the beginning of my practice where I was having a lot of perplexity about different kinds of Tibetan practice or Vipassana, it was endless. It was just endless. And it never came to resolution through thought. Things only come to resolution through our experience. But we're thought junkies. No, we are. I mean, we we just have been trained in this way. We think that everything is going to be resolved through thinking about something. And the thought process, although very powerful, is also very limited. 
you will never understand about where Trungpa Rinpoche was at by thinking about it. I mean, you won't. You may not come to understand by not thinking about it either. (laughs) But so what? The question was whether it's wise to keep noting throughout the retreat, except perhaps when you're very closely connected with the experience. The noting really should be seen as a skillful means. A skillful means to be more connected, to be aware, to be with things without identifying with them, for as long as it's helpful, for as long as it's serving that purpose for as long as you find it useful in that way, I would continue. Uh, there, are, there are periods in the practice, either when things start moving or changing so quickly, there's no time to note. The noting is just too slow for how quickly you're perceiving things. At those times, you could either drop the noting or just have it a little more intermittently, instead of trying to note everything you know, at every tenth appearance. Um, In the general yogi population, I think people tend to err on the side of not noting enough because It's work of a certain kind. (laughs) You know, we don't like to do it. There are some people who really uh, use it quite diligently, uh, and maybe for them, they might experiment with times of not noting. You know, just to see, to see whether the mind is as aware, is as connected. It's all in the service of really being present, being mindful. So that's the reference point. When you do use the noting, you really want to play with keeping it very transparent. The note itself is just another arising appearance. So you don't get into this uh, pattern of being the noter, creating a sense of self or I in the one who's noting. Well, you don't want it so heavy that it's actually getting in the way of experiencing what's happening. It should be like the wings of a dragonfly. You know, you can see right through. No, not necessarily. I mean, there, there are times when that will happen, but there are other times when, for a variety of reasons, either karmic or 
just certain stages in the practice when there's not a lot of pain in the body, that that's really not predominant. Um, so I wouldn't, you don't particularly need to go looking for it. The other side is also not trying to avoid it. Right? And that's why just the, the suggestions of experimenting with periods of time when you don't move to say, does pain come in that situation or not? You could, you could sit without moving often and it's very comfortable. The body could be very light. Or you could be sitting without moving and, and it could really be unpleasant. So to do it just as a way of opening ourselves to whatever is presenting itself. So the practice actually can be fun. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not always this kind of. <laughs> you know, although sometimes it feels like it is, but. question was about how to work with fear. The first is being mindful and making or checking to see that the aspect of mindfulness that is acceptance is really there with it. Because to the degree that we're with it in any of the variety of ways in which we can know it's there but not be accepting of it, that's not mindfulness, and it's not really working skillfully with the fear. So that's the it's okay. We really want to be accepting. The second is also not having an agenda in our practice for what should be happening. Because if we do, we just get caught in sort of a backdrop of what we want, what we don't want, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, because we, we have some preconceptions of what should be happening instead of simply, this is what's here. And the third is working with the attitude of metta and trust. Okay, one last question. The question was about watching emotions, or particularly as they manifest or felt in the body. The reason that's a helpful uh, approach is that 
the emotion as a mental event is quite amorphous and subtle. It's really hard hard to get a handle specifically on it. And if we look for it only as a mental event, well, you know, we know we feel something, but where is it exactly? We can get to a place of really settling back and opening to it in the same way we might open to space in the room. Very subtle object, yet we can become aware of it. You know, if we're, if we're settled back and receptive and not looking too hard. If we're looking too hard, we'll look right through it. It's the same way with the emotion as a mind object. As it's expressed through the body, the sensations are quite tangible. You know, and so they're an easy access to that, to the quality of the emotion, particularly, or particularly revealing our attitude towards it. You know, because if we're feeling some sensations in the body associated with sadness or happiness or anger or joy, whatever it is, and we focus in or feel those bodily sensations associated with it, and then notice, are we tensing behind them? Are we holding on to it? You know, are we trying to do something about them? So not only do we notice the sensations, we also notice how we're relating to them, which reveals to us how we're relating to the emotion itself. Just as a reminder of something that's been said in different ways many times, the entire essence of the practice is not about what's happening. It's about how we're relating to what's happening. And so, again and again, to come back to that really is the doorway to being with experience in a free way. Okay, I'd like to just encourage you to encourage you. <laughs> Make the day seamless. You know, that's really what builds the practice. You know, so that there aren't a lot of leaks through the day. And notice those times when there's a tendency just to space out or to spin out, you know, take a little vacation. The awareness can be done in a very relaxed way. It's not tensing, but it's really that commitment or that intentionality, moment after moment after moment. That really builds the power of the practice. Any questions about your practice? I have a couple of questions about the compassion exercise we brought up. Being in some countries, I think, not to get into groups. And whatever subject I focus on, whether it's myself or others, on a number of occasions I felt the impulse to weep, not in the story, but to weep as a believer. And that seemed like a natural connection. 
right, let's do one at a time. Okay, the first question was about enduring compassion meditation and uh, tears seem to come from a place of sadness or grief. Is it best to suppress that in a way? And, or is there a space for that to happen in the compassion? I think there are a few different aspects to this. One is, tears can come from many different mind states. So I wouldn't necessarily assume that if there's an impulse to cry, that it's necessarily sadness or sorrow or grief, although it might be. I think there could be tears of compassion. There can be tears of joy. So that would be the first sort of discrimination to make. If you see that it actually is sorrow, you know, or grief, and here it's sort of switching Uh, for the sake of interest to Vipassana, really, to see for yourself what actually is the root in the mind of that grief. See for yourself whether there's some aversion to a situation, namely aversion to a situation of suffering. Is that really... Uh, what's at the root of that emotion or not. I think you'll find that as you do the compassion meditation more and more, you will be able to distinguish this feeling of compassion that is free of any aversion. It's very open-hearted, it's very connected to the suffering. There's a movement of the heart to alleviate the suffering, but it's not coming from a place of hating the suffering. But sorrow is the near enemy of that, which means that it looks a lot like it, but it's different. So first it's to see where the tears are actually coming from. Then it's to discriminate for yourself, so you really see incisively the difference between compassion and sorrow. It's like a computer tree, you know. And if you do that, then if it is grief, now just because we see that it's the near enemy of compassion doesn't mean that it's not going to come. It is going to come. Um, if you can shepherd the mind back you know, to simply the phrase of compassion, that would be fine. If it's really strong, open up a little bit with Vipassana. You know, so you allow that to wash through mindfully and then come back so you're not in a struggle. It's, it's somewhat similar to 
dealing with strong mind states when they come up in doing the metta practice. You know, if we can put them aside and focus on the metta, that's fine, but if we can't, if they're very strong, then you might need to really look at them you know, in the light of awareness, even with a note or two, as a way of disidentifying. One teacher, Ruth Dennison, had a, a very graphic description. I don't know if it's too graphic for your sensitive minds. <laughs> but she was talking about sort of people doing metta when they're actually filled with a lot of anger, you know, or aversion, and not dealing with it. Sort of just, you know, there's this whole wellspring of aversion, may you be happy, may you be happy. She said it's like throwing molasses in a cesspool. (laughs) You know, we have to in some way open to what's actually there. Sometimes yogi notes to either each other or to various teachers or staff can be filled with, you know, why are you making so much noise, da 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 signed Metta. <laughs> what was the second question? I really look. Now, this is the way we find out things, really. We can kind of get indications of where to look, you know, from the teaching, but it really only makes sense to us in a deep way when we see it for ourselves. Uh, The second factor of awakening, investigation of uh, Dharma, can you talk a little bit about that? Is there a systematic, neat way to, to do that at, at times? Mm-hmm. The question is about that's the second factor of enlightenment of, on the list of the seven factors, investigation of the Dharma. That's another phrase for uh, the wisdom factor, which we will continue to be talking about. In brief, it really means the awareness of the three characteristics. So impermanence is really enough. Uh, you can see that. Really. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And so sometimes it, sometimes you might, as you're sitting, you know, give attention to the fact that everything is changing. Sort of shift your focus a little bit at times from the emphasis on what it's hap- on what is happening to the emphasis on noticing that whatever it is, is arising and passing away. So, so the impermanence really comes into uh, the spotlight. Or the dukkha, or the selflessness. Well, she didn't say it was enough. (laughs) 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 
question was about sleeping, now is of sleep, referring to Deepama's suggestion of one time that I just sleep three hours. And if there is energy to practice and not sleep much, whether to stay with that, even if it means having some bouts of sleepiness during the next day. part of the development of the practice over time, and we're all on our different schedule, so it's not a question of comparing ourselves with somebody else. But over time, what happens is we tune into this mind-body as an energy system. And the more restful our minds become in terms of non-reactivity, when we're not tiring ourselves out so much, with the continuous liking and disliking and wanting and not wanting, it actually becomes a state of profound rest when we sit. And so in a quite organic way, the need for sleep begins to get less. Pay attention to that so you're not simply going to sleep out of habit. I think it's quite good to sit and walk as long as you have the energy. If the next day you know, there are periods of sleepiness, but you can be with them and go through them. That seems fine. Uh, basically, go to sleep when you fall over. What's important in this <laughs> is also to do this from a place of interest and investigation, not from a place of a should. You know, because if we create this good yogi, bad yogi, and if I were really a good yogi, I should, that, it doesn't work. It's counterproductive. It would be much better just to go to sleep at some regular hour. But if you have that sense of just just playing, seeing, seeing what happens, see where it goes, especially when when the energy is there. Uh, and that's great. Just in this regard, as another way, you know, you've been here now almost almost six weeks. Look for ways of how you can. intensify or strengthen uh, your practice and really look at where the leaks are during the day of where the attention gets half-hearted working with sleep is a is a fruitful area and just to play with that another thing that is very helpful you know is is well worth practicing uh, is slowing down not slowing down from the sense of holding yourself back, and you can feel when you're doing that, when there's a kind of tightness and tension and contraction, again, that's, that's counterproductive. 
but you can slow down from a place of settling back into the body. Now, instead of being out ahead of yourself as you're moving through the day, just settle back in the body, and from that place of being settled back, move slowly. Again, this will be relative to each one of you. It's not, it's not that there's one absolute speed you should be walking at, but for each one, move slower than you normally do. And make that, make that kind of effort. And in that, you'll see that a great deal of care in the movement uh, becomes possible. The mind becomes more concentrated, more focused, more present. It's a very useful tool. Often people have it together, more or less, in the sitting and walking practice. But in going from sitting to walking, or going to mealtime, or after mealtime, or during the mealtime, somehow we lose the sense that a step at that time can be done as carefully as a step during the walking meditation. So really pay attention to whether you have that intentionality you know, of care through the day. That's what's meant by making the day seamless. It very much uh, illuminates the practice. Do it with a light heart. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about practicing with a half smile. It's really helpful. This is not a question of becoming grim. It's not. I'm going to walk slow. about your practice. I have a question from the talk two nights ago. Um, in that talk, you mentioned the source of the death and, and how, that, how that affected the, the Buddha. And I, I didn't quite get it. Obviously, the Buddha didn't feel sorrow and get attached to sorrow, but it seems to imply that he didn't even feel sorrow. It, yeah. So if that's the case, what what was the Buddha trying to trying to express? What effect on him was he trying to express in saying that it was like the, the light of the sun and the moon? Let me preface my remarks by saying it's all projection anyway since I really can't say with certainty what the Buddha was feeling or not feeling Um, but given um, what has been said and written about his state of awakening and the freedom of the mind (coughs) excuse me both from freedom from attachment freedom from aversion, 
what I read into that comment of the Buddha was his experience of the state or feeling of loss. That he was a being who was there and then not there. And then with an appreciation of all the qualities of Sariputta, you know, which were present when he was alive, and then the absence of them. And so there was that experience or understanding of the loss involved. And so I was feeling the possibility of actually being with that sense of loss without the feeling, the attendant feeling of sorrow or grief, given the absence of attachment. And so it's just really a suggestion to you to explore that possibility. Because often I feel we get caught in conventional patterns of response, which may well be, uh, I could say, appropriate to where we are now. But I think that we need not limit ourselves in terms of understanding what's possible in terms of freedom of mind. So again, it's, it's really just a question of looking and investigating. When you're in a situation of feeling loss, of feeling sorrow, of feeling grief, these qualities that do come, these emotions do come, if there's an interest in the mind of really understanding, just to take a look and see how much of those feelings come from or are born out of attachment, what is not born out of attachment, just to say. However, I think it just opens up, it really opens up our horizons. That may be that story of. The question was about her having heard a story of when the Buddha, after his enlightenment, going back home and his father giving him the keys to the kingdom, and uh, the Buddha then distributing all the wealth, leaving his family destitute. <laughs> uh, actually, I've never heard that. Uh, it's possible that it could be one of the Jataka tales. No, because as it's traditionally written about anyway, uh, when the Buddha went back as a monk, he quite specifically did not get involved you know, in the worldly affairs. And in fact, uh, his wife and his son uh, became fully enlightened. 
you know, after receiving the teachings. I think his son uh, took some time to do it. Uh, I'm not sure. I think his wife did it quicker. (laughs) So I'm not sure where where that came from. The other night when I was talking about the mind-body being an energy system, uh, that was all in the context or specifically around the issue of uh, sort of dealing with sexual energy in the practice. And sometimes um, I have the sense that people reify that as a concept. You know, and so in some way make it more of an issue, not only in practice, but in our lives, than it really is if we understand that what we're calling sexual energy is simply one expression of the energy which is this whole system. You know, and one of the things that happens in practice as we no longer perceive the body as something so solid, right? but really, in our practice, perceive it as an energy flow, which is what happens over time. There's really no solidity there at all. It becomes more apparent experientially that the way we feel that energy depends upon where our locus of attention is. But that it's the same energy. You know, it's whatever one wants to call it. Uh, And so then, um, sort of a lot of the issues or a lot of the stories, the psychological level stuff that we might have around sexual energy. And we just build this whole story as if that's something, one discrete area, you know, of our lives or our experience. We see that's not so, it's not such a tightly tied knot because it's the same energy flowing through and we get much more fluid. You know, in where we're feeling it, of how it's experienced. Um, so again, in my experience, it just it it opened up that whole area. You know, and feeling feeling the body and the mind more as a unified system, rather than these separate compartments that somehow we had to deal with or untangle. And one of the amazing things about Dharma practice is that um, 
we keep seeing through or seeing past our conditioned and often conventional view of ourselves. We just begin to see what we're calling self or body or human being. You know, we have so many concepts and so many fixed ideas of what this is. And it's, it's of course, reinforced by conventional understanding. And yet through our practice we get we get past those conventional perceptions and begin to experience this mind-body on so many different levels. And really begin to see the amazing insubstantiality of it all. question was about individual consciousness and collective consciousness and somehow it seems that what's going on in her mind is not necessarily what's going on in my mind. (laughs) Maybe not. Again, I think it's just a question of uh, what particular level we happen to be tuning into. And one of the things that has always been quite mysterious, and yet there are many uh, stories and teachings about this, you know, of beings actually, one of the powers of beings, you know, that can be developed is knowing what's in so-called other people's minds. How could that happen? I mean, if there was no connection at all, how could that possibly happen? So I don't understand how it happens, but it evidently does. Also, if you think of, just as a, this is just a metaphor, so don't take this literally. But if you think of uh, the quality of the mind or awareness like space, because it is an immaterial thing, it's not, it's not like a little ball of something. It's immaterial. So if you think of that quality of immateriality being like space, and think of the space inside the room and the space outside of the room, is it the concept, even, of 
the space being different. It doesn't make much sense. Anyway, don't think about this stuff. (laughs) I get very seduced by it because I like to think about it. (laughs) It doesn't really lead any place. This is the, and this has actually been coming up in interviews lately. Uh, be watchful about the seduction of Dharma reflection, you know, because it is interesting, at least to some minds, you know, different aspects of the teachings or the Dharma, and so it's easy to get pulled into thoughts and reflections about them as you're sitting, forgetting that they, from the perspective of practice, it's really just more thoughts, right? So be watchful about, you know, getting pulled in and lost in long reflections in the name of the Dharma. And that's where it's so seductive, because we're actually thinking about the practice, but not really being mindful of the fact that we're thinking. Because insight and the deepening of practice, as you, I think, know very well by now, really comes quite intuitively, not discursively. It doesn't come from thinking about it. It comes from just opening uh, to our experience on deeper and deeper levels. Just one suggestion today. I wouldn't walk outside with a wind sail. (laughs) (laughs) The maintenance department uh, just wanted to convey to you that whatever water conservation measures you're taking have been quite effective, and it really did cut uh, the usage way down, so they were appreciative of that. They are aware of uh, certain drips and leaks throughout the building. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.